I was talking to a friend of ours recently, uh, Oliver. He's an accountant who, uh, in retirement, has become a prophet without an F. And he told me a recent story of how God had used his gifting. Uh, God woke him in the middle of the night, and he found himself praying for two friends of his. But all the Lord would give him prophetically was just the word, letter. No matter how much time he pondered it, asking for the Lord to reveal more to him, that was all he was given, just the word letter. So that's what he passed on to his friends, that God woke him in the middle of the night and just gave him one word, letter. Doesn't sound much, does it? His, the wife of his friend contacted him several days later. She explained she had a real phobia about opening letters but she'd taken his prompting to mean that she should open two letters she'd received quite some time before but had not been able to bring herself to open. One of them was about a legal process threatened against their rental property. She was amazed that God should show such caring about the details of their life and would show such patience for her in her weakness. Oliver's grace gift of prophecy was a means of God's grace to that lady. It enabled them to avoid a massive and costly legal issue. He made God's grace present and available for her. Another example would be from my life. I went to a minister's fraternal when we were in Edgware. Uh, one time I was put in a small group to pray with someone I'd never met before called Granville. And I don't think I've ever seen him since. And we were talking about what we wanted to pray for. And I was talking about, well, maybe we're thinking it was the right time to think about moving on. And he said, will you stay? I said, yes, if that's what the Lord wants. He said, a year and a half. I, you know, I checked him out afterwards. That was on June the 2nd, 1999. Uh, he had prophesied accurately sometime before it happened, years before it happened, the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. That was on June the 2nd, 1999. I was appointed to St. Mary's Bletchley on November the 3rd, 2000. Why did that matter? Well, it meant that I knew God was, pro was proposing to send me there before the civil war broke out in the church, which I was sent to fix. That meant I never questioned my call there, as difficult as it was, and as discouraged as the church was because of that prophecy, it was undoubtedly a means of God's grace to me. In passing, let me say three brief things about what prophecy is not. Uh, first, prophecy is not preaching. The words for prophecy and for preaching in the New Testament rarely, if ever, coincide. The two words the New Testament translates preaching Kerusu, uh, which means to proclaim, and euangeliozo, which means to announce good news. You can hear the word evangelism in that, are clearly associated in the New Testament with evangelism. If we wanted to distinguish preaching from teaching, the first is about proclaiming the faith, and the second is about uh, raising people in the faith. So when we read preaching in the New Testament, we should nearly always think evangelism. 
And we see this in Ephesians 4.11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Ephesians 4.11 clearly distinguishes prophets from evangelists or preachers and teachers. So there's no biblical warrant to suggest that prophecy is now only exercised through preaching. They are clearly seen in the New Testament as distinct gifts and offices. Second really quick point. Prophecy is not mostly about the future. It's more forth-telling than foretelling. It speaks out God's perspective and purpose in the present. It's about what we should do now and next, rather than what will happen at the end. Prophecy is more about itinerary than destination. And third, really quick point, prophecy does not have the authority of Scripture. Scripture remains our final authority in all matters. Everything we believe God might be saying through prophecy has to be weighed against Scripture. If it helps, think of a prophetic word as never having a capital letter and Scripture always having a capital letter. Prophecy always defers to Scripture. With those quick points made, I wanted today to go deeper about the grace gift of prophecy. We're going to look at three things, what prophecy brings, how prophecy works, and how prophecy should be tested. So first, what prophecy brings. Verse one, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Note that it's not an either or, it's a both and. To Paul, it's never gifts or character, it's always both. So why is it loving to pursue prophecy? Simply verse three, because everyone who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, their encouragement and their comfort. Prophecy makes God's grace present and available to people in these ways. Prophecy brings strength to us. The root word there means to build something up. You might think of something being underpinned, where a building vulnerable to collapse is reinforced through fresh and deeper foundations. You might think of scaffolding, where the building's weight is supported while essential work happens or in some surgical operations where the heart is taken offline, so to speak, while essential work's done to restore health. Prophecy also brings encouragement. The root word means to call alongside, and it's the name given to the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, the one called alongside. In English, the word is simply about the giving of courage. Courage in the face of adversity, perhaps. Courage in the face of the need to keep going when it feels tough and it feels like nothing is changing. And the giving of courage in the face of the need to pray for a breakthrough. Because faith is opposed much more often to fear than to doubt. The word also means exhortation. And an exhortation can be a word of challenge. It can be a, a word that speaks to the will. Thus, prophecy can be a word that holds us accountable, challenges us to live differently, challenges us to follow through on what we said that we will do. And prophecy brings comfort or consolation, a word of love that brings grace from the Father, a word that shows us that our disappointments and sufferings matter to him, a word that is personal and speaks to the depths of who we are. 
as with my sister-in-law Mary, who at a day event where she knew very few people was called out from the front uh, and given the word by someone who had never met her, the Lord sees your struggles and says, well done. Now that might not sound, sound a lot, but Mary has now been supporting her eldest daughter living with brain tumours for seven years. It has been a profoundly scary and stressful time for her to be seen, to be known to be praised by her heavenly father because she did not have a good relationship with her earthly father was a massive word of comfort and consolation to her. It told her that her struggles mattered to the father. So prophecy, rightly heard and rightly spoken, can bring new or greater strength, like underpinning or scaffolding, to someone or to the church as a whole. It can bring new courage to us, as well as a challenge to live differently. And it can bring great and effective comfort and consolation when it shows us that we are known, known and yes, treasured by our Heavenly Father. Second, how prophecy works. I think one reason we often get confused about prophecy is that we often don't understand it has a usual structure or rhythm. The basic structure is this, revelation. Something to which the Lord draws our attention or says to us. Might be something we see in the world around us that grabs our attention. It might be a, a few words that someone says. It might be a verse of scripture that comes to mind. It might be an image that comes to mind. This revelation we might compare to a seed. The next phase of the pattern is the interpretation. The meaning of the revelation of what God wants to say. You might compare that to a plant germinating as something has come to life. The final phase of the pattern is the application. It's what will happen as a consequence of what God has revealed. It tells us how God wants us to respond or what God himself intends to do. You might compare that to the plant's fruit. Revelation, interpretation, application. Seed, plant, fruit. We see that basic structure or rhythm to prophetic words often in scripture. Amos 7, 7 to 9, for example. The revelation is given in verses 7 to 8a. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? What's the revelation? A plumb line, I replied. The interpretation, the plant, follows immediately. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The second half of verse 8. That's the interpretation. That's the meaning of the original revelation. And then the application or the fruit is given in verse 9. That judgment is coming as the Lord will destroy everything that doesn't measure up to the plumb line. Although it's given swiftly, one after another, we're not told how long it was in Amos' life between these stages, how much time in prayer and fasting maybe there was between these stages, but the pattern, the rhythm is clear. Revelation, interpretation, application, 
seed, plant, fruit. It's often seen in the Old Testament, but something clearly is very clearly seen in Amos 8 or Jeremiah 18 when he's at the potter's house. What do you see, Amos? What do you see, Jeremiah? Let's illustrate this as well from Matthew 6. Verse, second half of verse 28. See how the lilies of the field grow. That's the revelation. That's the seed. It's probably come from Jesus contemplating how the Father works in nature. He has had his attention drawn to something. The interpretation of the plant comes next. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. Fine with thinking. But what does that mean? Well, it follows in verses 30 to 34. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry. That's the application of the revelation and the interpretation. So this is the rhythm we often see in scripture about prophetic uh, words. Revelation, what God has shown us, what he's brought to our attention. Then interpretation, what that means. And application, how God is going to act or how we are being required to respond. So what prophecy brings, we looked at that. How prophecy works. And I could give you lots of other illustrations. We need to look third at how prophecy should be tested. Verse 1 Corinthians 14, 29 talks about weighing carefully what's being said. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22 says, Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So we need to weigh what's said. We need to test it and sift everything that's shared. And we need to throw away anything that doesn't seem to us good. Maybe because it doesn't seem wholesome. Or maybe because it simply doesn't resonate with us. It doesn't land with us. We don't see the significance of what's being said. And all the time we are listening with the Spirit's presence within us. Does this give us a sense of God's peace? A sense of quickening, in which case we listen. Does it miss us altogether, not land, seem insignificant? In which case we set it aside and we pray that the Lord will confirm it in some way. Or does the Spirit's presence inside us have a sense of discomfort? In which case we pray into it, asking the Lord to show us what his Spirit's presence is reacting against. Sometimes when things are shared with us, we need to pray for the gift of discernment, also called in 1 Corinthians 12, distinguishing between spirits. That discernment can help us grasp the motivation of the speaker and the word. Aside from this crucial listening to the Holy Spirit's presence within us, we also need to test the links in the chain. If it's revelation, interpretation, application, does the interpretation really flow from the revelation? Does the application really flow from the interpretation? Really what we're saying is, does the plant flow from the seed? Does the fruit flow from the plant? You don't get plums from acorns. You don't get daffodils from sunflower seeds. Does the plant 
flow from the seed, the fruit from the plant. You see, it's possible to hear from the Lord, hear a revelation and yet not quite get the interpretation right. Or get the interpretation right, but be slightly off with the application. Now, I know many of you are sitting there thinking, where is this in Scripture? If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 21, verses 10 to 14. It talks about a prophet named Agabus. Just to give evidence of his credentials, in Acts 11, 28, Agabus uh, uh, prophesies a famine that would spread right across the Roman world and that it did indeed happen in the reign of Claudius. It was his prophetic word that led to the collection we hear a lot about in Acts and in other places. So he has got a demonstrated track record of hearing God, which is quite impressive. In Acts 21, he comes over to Paul, probably in a prayer or a worship gathering, and he takes uh, Paul's belt as a prophetic action and ties his own hands and feet with it and says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Verse 11, the revelation that he has seen is the tying of his hands and feet with the belt. The interpretation is given in the words spoken. What happens next is a discussion about how to apply those words. They're testing the links in the chain. No one questions either the revelation or the interpretation. But Paul's companions and all those gathered plead with Paul to see the application as a warning, to see it as as God telling him not to go to Jerusalem. That's how Paul's companions and all those gathered uh, apply the interpretation and the revelation. Their application is that divine guidance has come to help Paul avoid arrest in Jerusalem. Paul is quite emotional when he responds in verse 13, possibly because something similar has just happened in Tyre in verses 4 to 6. He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So here in the scriptures, we have a group of disciples testing the links in the chain and having to wrestle through and pray through what the application was. And the conclusion comes in verse 14. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. This is the rhythm or the structure of prophecy we often see in scripture. Revelation, interpretation, application, seed, plant, fruit. Then that's what our weighing of prophecy should look like. We should test the links in the chain, listening to the Spirit's presence in our midst or in our hearts and asking for God's discernment as to his purpose. That's how forth telling happens, so that we know God's purpose. That's how strength, encouragement and comfort are released into our midst through the grace gift of prophecy. What does this mean for us today? First, I think we should pray for the grace gift of prophecy. It makes God's grace present and available. It brings strength. It speaks encouragement. It comforts and consoles. 
Lots of us had said many similar things to my sister-in-law Mary. But when her heavenly father said it through someone who did not know anything about her situation, then she knew she was seen, heard and praised. It had an impact on her greater than months and months and months of our encouraging words. Helping people hear their Heavenly Father is a privilege. Why would we not want that? Surely we should pray for the grace gift of prophecy to be released in and through us and to grow in and through our church, even, even through people like us. Second, prophecy puts us in touch with HQ. The hardest thing on any battlefield is knowing what's going on. We went to battle last summer and visited the site of the Battle of Hastings. Why did Harold lose? Because the Normans, who, who had failed several times to break down the, the Saxon shield wall, pretended to run away. The Saxons charged down the hill after them, not knowing what was going on, and then the Normans rallied and attacked them and won the day. Prophecy helps us to be in touch with HQ. Prophecy helps us to know all we need to know, because we don't need to know everything, all we need to know about what's happening on the battlefield. Prophecy and discernment mean that we can allow the Lord to lead us, whether individually or as groups, or as a church, we can allow the Lord to lead his church. That's the commitment we're making in seeking to hear the Lord clearly and taking time and careful prayerfulness to discern as best we can what the Lord is saying to us. And third, prophecy challenges us to be dependent upon God. When we start to hear the Lord like this, either for ourselves or others or through others for ourselves, we see God at work as a consequence. That changes our perspective on lots of things. But primarily it opens us up to being dependent in a new way on the Spirit's presence and power. And opens us up to receiving other grace gifts as well. Releasing God's grace to be as fully present and available in our midst as the Holy Spirit longs for it to be. It helps us, in other words, to be more expectant that God will answer, more surrendered to his purpose in our lives, and more hungry for God to move in other ways. When God has led us to do something, we pray into it with much greater faith and expectation. We embrace, in other words, our role as co-workers with God in a completely new and deeper way. Now, there's some unlearning to do in that. For we're all used to making decisions for God that we then expect him to bless. Or making decisions for God that we determine to enact whether he wants it or not. And there's some risky learning to do as well. I wonder to what extent you're ready we are ready to step into being co-workers with God who depend upon his leading. Being co-workers with God is much more exciting than doing stuff for God. Stepping into new things is riskier than simply doing what we know we can do, even if God doesn't show up. And yet working with God opens us up to so many new possibilities. Are we willing to step into being co-workers with God? 
Are we willing to step into that place of ever greater dependence and working with him for his glory? Amen.